TI. Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar is the site. John Von Tobel is here as the company. James is helping out with the setup down here. It's Steve Cofield as we get ready for a uh, big weekend in town. There's a boxing match. We might hit that around 5.55 today. And we've got all the news to update on the A's. VGK with a beautiful win last night. That's exactly what they needed. And I think most importantly, the two guys that they really need to play at the level they can play at, Eichel and Stone, went off. So that was good. We got some NFL draft coming up. We're going to talk to Stanford Route, one of our football insiders, also Caleb Herring towards the end of this hour. So yesterday was a bizarre day, really, the night before started it all with the A's announcing that they're going to buy some property from Red Rock Resorts. And their plan is to build a baseball stadium. They would like to have all the funding conversations done inside of six weeks. Interesting. Sounds familiar. Kind of like the Raiders before the uh, the election when they, were, they wanted to make sure that they got everything done before the uh, new crew of legislators came in. We had Dave Cavill on yesterday. We may play some of that back for you a little later in the show. But, you know, the more I thought about that conversation with the A's president, and then I listened to some other conversations with Cavill outside of the market, which sounded a little bit different. I started thinking to myself, how do we cover this over the next two months without everything being officially done? Can we really sit here and be super rah-rah? No, what do you mean? I'm looking around confused. I thought it was well, it's not done. What? The A's are going to be here. It's the and headline. The way that Cavill came on, he did slip in a couple of times that, you know, we're working on these parts of it. He wasn't fibbing, but it was delivered like, hey, this is done. We know it's not done. The more you get feedback from people, there is a vocal public on social media that could literally be like 3,000 people in a town of two and a half million. All the legislators haven't had a chance to speak on this or look at numbers. We know that the Raiders may want to have a say in what's going on. I don't know what Bill Foley thinks about this. I have no idea. Like, we're on the Treasure Island right now, which is further down the strip. But I have no idea if casino power brokers are interested in a project that would put a giant stadium on the other side of the 15 and for now would have people go over there and maybe not come back to the Strip until there's a, a ped bridge done. Will they support this? Supporting the NFL is one thing. Mm-hmm. And supporting Bill Foley to be the first major league sport in town while he and AEG and MGM were paying for all of it is different than what is going on here. And baseball and where baseball is now is also, what, 150th of the NFL and different than hockey. I'm not saying hockey is some ascending sport. I don't know where baseball is, like on the ground in cities when it comes to gate and excitement. So there's a lot to hash through here. And while as a sports guy, and we went through this with the Raiders, as a sports guy, John, listen, it's something else for us to cover. It means that 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 gap, and I don't think there's a slow time during the year, but if people think, hey, like May through August is a slow time, you know, now from an attendance standpoint, a tourist standpoint, you've got another period of time that is covered. Pretty much the whole year would be covered with a baseball team here. But we there's a lot of things that need to be answered, and there's a lot of forces around town that are going to have a say in this. Uh, yes, and that's for me, that's where I'm at, right? Because I got a whole bunch yesterday, like, it's over, it's done. A's are paying for it, they're here. And it's like, I don't think that's really the case. That's easy to say that, but to your point, 
There's a reason why they want to get this thing done because they want to rush this through so there's no, uh, there's no roadblocks. And I think the strongest point that you made there was twofold, right? The National Football League, it is eight events over the course of, you know, we'll call it the fall, that are high profile and a lot of people want to go to those. And you have the tie-in of coming to Las Vegas with it so you can make an event out of it. The building was also needed. We needed something that could hold big stadium concerts, big shows, a 65,000-seat stadium. So now we've got the big stadium. Right. And, and that's why So I, I read, like, some of the appeal. It was like, you know, it can host events. Like, well, we've got a bunch of stuff already, right? Like, you've got uh, Allegiant. You've got the bubble coming up over there. You've got a whole bunch of things. The that, bubble. Right. Are you or whatever. About the sphere? Yeah, the sphere. Yeah, the, the sphere is going to hold 17,000. And a lot of people think that is non-sports. But you could hold boxing and UFC and slap fighting there. You, you, there right. People slap can be fight. creative in an amphitheater with sports. Keep going. Yeah. So I just when you look at other things and, and with hockey, there's two things, right? It's to your point. There was the appeal of bringing the first uh, high-profile major league team here, and there's also the fact that like we don't actually even know what hockey's going to be in like ten years in terms of attendance, popularity, whatever it is. For baseball, it's hyper regional. You don't know if you're going to bring that same in terms of influx of people coming in to watch it. I don't know if it's going to have that same draw. And the other part, which is, like you said, you know, part of like what the A's are trying to rush through is what, from what I can understand, is the area around the ballpark, right, and putting stuff up and getting attractions around there. Because what's – like, I'm going to Seattle this, this summer, right? And what's the first thing I've asked a bunch of people? Hey, what's around the ballpark? Because you want to go and check it out. And, yeah, there's the strip, but from all accounts, it seems like they want to build other stuff around there. Would every other property around here be like, you build other attractions? You know what I mean? We don't want people in our building. No, of course not. So, like, there's, there's all these little things that are piling up in terms of potential roadblocks. Will it get done? I would say it's a slight favorite. But to say that it's guaranteed and that we're all over with, wipe your hands up, we're good, Las Vegas A's, baby, I don't think that's the case. Well, you got one of the first real strong indications, because like I said, a lot of politicians haven't spoken out about this because it came together so quickly and it had been so quiet that they were going to buy some land, 50 of 100 acres. Yeah. It could be 56 of 100 acres at Wild Wild West. Uh, property, the old Wild Wild West from Red Rock Resorts, that we just haven't had all the feedback yet. But Johnny Katz got a hold of Mark Davis, or someone did, uh, over at the paper. And Mark Davis, who, listen, there's a history between the Raiders and the A's. They shared that building, and it was a contentious relationship for a long time. And it goes back to Mark's dad. And you know how people are with families, right? You F with my father. Yep. Or my mother, you think I'm going to forget that years later? And Mark Davis did not pull any punches. The Raiders owner said, I won't forget what they did to us in Oakland. They squatted on a lease for 10 years and made it impossible for us to build on that stadium. They were looking for a stadium. We were looking for a stadium. They didn't want to build a stadium and then went ahead and signed a 10-year lease with the city of Oakland and said, we're the base team. But how about that line? I won't forget what they did to us in Oakland. Uh-oh. Right. Uh-oh. Now, the, the fascinating thing here is, and we're gonna, we have to let this play out, a lot of the powers that got the Raiders their money and got that stadium done, the governor is out. A lot of those politicians and public servants either are out or in different offices and maybe don't have the power. Um, the guy who, in the end, really was instrumental in getting the deal done, and I can't believe he got boned out of it, or maybe, I don't know, who knows what happened, but Sheldon Adelson is not here anymore. So a lot has changed in less than 10 years. So do the Raiders have power to stop it? Will they try? Uh, Mark Bedane is no longer with the Raiders. He's a real power broker. Dan Ventrelli's not with the Raiders anymore. Does new management have the power? And she's got quite the background. She does. So 
this, this is going to be interesting. And as described, there's a timeline here. I mean, I think six weeks is a little ridiculous. I think they've got a little more time. But when you heard Cavill, it's like, hey, we turned our attention to Vegas. So what happens if we – I'm going to say drag our feet, but I actually think it's give the project due diligence. Right. Then what? Then what? And that's why I, I heard him on other shows leaving the door more than open. The possibility, he said, of moving to Vegas. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, with the people around here, it sounded like you're coming. Right. But we know, that's, we know that he can't say that for sure because the money's not there yet. It's a $1.5 billion stadium. $500 million in a creative way is going to go from the public to the A's. I don't know who fights that. So this is a crazy story to cover. Oh, of course. I, I mean, I can't wait to see how it develops. And I hope I get to go to, like, eight more Snitic meetings because that's, <laughs> that's going to be right. – it was, it was one of the highlights of my career. And actually, I will say, doing, like, sports media journalism, that was – I was like, wow, this is the town and dirty. Going to Snitic meetings and having the UNLV band show up to pump up the crowd and having insiders after every Snitic meeting saying, it's done, here it is, they're going to prove it today. And that's not really the case. I don't know that the media has much power in this whole thing, but, you know, we can certainly flex our muscle here and there. I'm not saying we can. But between the RJ mm-hmm. and now Johnny Ralston, who's at the Nevada Independent, or it's his site, um, he's been firing left and right. Now, he won't say it. I don't know why like old media people subtweet. Why won't they just say it? Is there like a lawsuit if you call out the RJ? Like, you keep sending stuff out, John Ralston. And I, I kind of like a lot of what he's saying, that there's a lot of details to be worked out. And, but he's ripping the RJ for being a cheerleader the whole time. Yeah. So... I'm sure the RJ is going to do some really good reporting on this, but we'll see what you know what the media say is in this whole thing. But it's fascinating. Uh, but I, I don't know. I I kind of go back and forth. I made the decision last night and this morning that we're going to cover this, you know, when we can and, and the best we can. But I'm not approaching this with like, hey, it's done. Oh, I don't. I, I, don't. I can't I, because I just don't. We've seen what happens in pro sports. We've seen the way the A's and management and the way Cavill has spoken to other people, how they've behaved. I don't know what's going to happen in the long run. So, I mean, in Vegas, I think most of us have a healthy cynicism. We have a lot of experience here. There's a lot. You can get duped in a lot of ways in Vegas. Right. And you learn your lesson over the So that's the other interesting thing. I don't know if baseball and Oakland, the A's, realize what they're coming to. Like, this isn't stars in the sky gullible jackass town. Right. This is, and, and we, you know, we were saying it three weeks ago. We're not desperate anymore. If this was the first go-around and Major League Baseball, hey, they're going to open things up, and oh, oh, my God, we're a Major League City. Like, we've got the NFL now. We've got, we've got hockey. Um, the NBA, rumor is they're paying for everything. Now, that may not be until, like, 2028, 2029. But that project, I haven't heard. Now, it may. And it may involve the same kind of thing, a tax district, so maybe it's the mm-hmm. same thing. But that's been floated out there. So this is a different time for baseball to come to town versus 10 years ago. Well, and to your point about desperation, and it's also the sport itself too, right? Like this city, right? Because remember, who was it that we talked to? Was it Strother, Julian Strother after their, uh, their win? And he called it, like, you know, Vegas is becoming more of a basketball town. No, it's a basketball town. <laughs> right. And, and, but, like, to that point where yeah. it's like the desperation, if you want to use that term, I don't know if it's desperation or excitement, but if the NBA – were to start doing this, then you'd get, I think, a lot more people to get behind it publicly and be ready to go and support that thing. You know, there's a high contingent of basketball fans out here. But, like, baseball? And, and, that's, and then the other devil in all of this, I think, Steve, when you talk about just how this would work, are you going to try to win? 
Because that's the other part. That's my big worry. Right. I, I don't really care if you're going to come out here. Why buy a $1. billion stadium or $1.5 billion stadium, have in whatever creative way, ask for $500 million for another project to help build that area up, and then go, we're going to spend $20 million on payroll and win 50 games every single year. Like and that's, that's And that's the worry with this organization. Right. Can You never know with an owner. I mean, we, we didn't know. Bill Foley said all the right things. Mm-hmm. Oh, he meant it. He's shown that over six years. But Bill Foley was a new, like, a new player in the game, right, where it was like, hey, this is an expansion franchise. We're going to do this. So you didn't know. We have a long track record to mm-hmm. show us that the Oakland A's are just going to be the Oakland A's or the Las Vegas A's, if you will. I hope it happens. I hope they come and spend like a top 12 team. Yep. I think a stadium would be awesome. I think redevelopment of that area would be awesome. It's my favorite stadium site that we've talked about for like 10 years now. But they need to do it the right way, and they need to fund it the right way. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be at Finley Chevrolet. Come on over. We can talk sports and uh, check out their awesome pre-owned vehicle tent sale. So they're going to have uh, dozens of vehicles out there uh, for sale. And, of course, the uh, great selection of brand-new Chevrolets. Lots of value in the new cars. Uh, good rates are available. 11A to 1P. 11A to 1P. I'll be at Finley Chevrolet. It's off the 215 between Rainbow and Jones. 11A to 1P. Cofield on the scene at Finley Chevrolet. Keep it locked right here. Cofield and company will return in minutes on ESPN Las Vegas. More coming up on the A's possibility of moving to Las Vegas and developing that wild, wild west site. We'll get into this uh, at the end of the hour for a couple seconds with Caleb Herring. He's a Las Vegan. Want his opinion. Also in the 4 o'clock hour and then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll get the Oakland side of things. One of the local TV guys is going to join us. Uh, John is really good on the NBA, and I apologize, John. Lots going on. So we're squeezing the NBA a little bit here. I think one of the biggest stories of the week was what the NBA did to Draymond Green by sitting him. I have strong opinions on it. I know you do as well. Great job last night. It's not... It wasn't a surprise to me that the Warriors came out freaking hot as a pistol and also very willing to roughhouse. Like early on, there was, I think there was a pump fake at the free throw line by DeMontis Sabonis. He was going to take like a 14 footer, and they were just like, just like rake the ball out of his hands. Jordan Poole literally socked him in the face. I mean, any any other other game, that's a foul. Of course. And you knew the Warriors were going to do it, and the NBA is like, you know what, we got to let them get, get a little rough this game the other way. Of course. And then the shooting wasn't very good on either side, but the Warriors made a lot more threes, and the Kings were just, I mean, with, I think with like nine minutes left in the game, I looked at the numbers. They were sitting at like eight of 36. I'm like, yep. you, you're not going to beat the Warriors shooting like that from three. And for the first time in the series, not getting destroyed physically, but getting beat on the boards. Yeah. By the way, this is, uh, this is what I love about the new Twitter. B Sack Sports, if you will, a quote from Adam Silver. Um, Last night, officiating in Golden State, Sacramento will be, quote, more fair. You'll see a bit more calls go Golden State's way so the national right. media can shut the bleep up. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. It was absolutely great. No, and you're right. I thought the ball sack does a really good job oh, awesome. uh, of parody. Yes. That's, that's not real, but kind of is. All oh, right, of course. But, but it kind of is. <laughs> you're right, a little bit behind the scenes. Um, no, I mean, look, I, I think to your overall point, I was really impressed with Golden State. They, they ratcheted up the physicality. They knew that without – and keep in mind, too, Steve, writing for anybody else, not only was Draymond not playing, Gary Payton wasn't playing either. So, like, that's two of their better defenders that aren't going to be available for them in that game. And you thought, like, all right, here we go. This is going to be a shootout. This is going to be one game where they're going up and down the floor, back and forth. They're not going to be able to stop Sacramento, the best offense in the regular season. And that was not the case. And it kind of showed one of the biggest misnomers about those Warriors when they were in their heyday, and they still kind of are, 
they were one of the best defenses in the NBA, man. And, like, they kind of showed their blueprint of what they're able to do. I, I, I was really impressed with it. So you know what drives me nuts about Dr. Dre, right? Mm-hmm. Draymond Green, master of kinesiology. Can't control his body. What am I going to do? Um, he's, he's on the ride. I'm not going to say he's along for the ride because he's an important element, especially now off the floor because he's not as good a player as he used to be. He's kind of losing it physically, but he's been important. Yeah. But he's also one of those guys who stands with Clay and Steph and, like, I'm their equal. Like, eh. <laughs> And last night's a great example. Like, Draymond Green's legacy, this would have stuck to him if they get destroyed in that game without him and then they just fizzle out in the series. I mean, I th- that's a bitter pill to swallow. And once again, his guys, especially the guy, kind of saved him. Yeah, but I, I would still go on to say there were still seven minutes left in game two. And the Kings went on to go 11 of 15 from the floor without him out there. That was a winnable game for, for Golden State still. So if they go on to lose this series, you could still go back to game two and be like, dude, like, come on. Like, they really needed you. And can you imagine if they go on to win that game and they're up 2-1 right now instead of as opposed to down 2-1 and still needing to win a game on the road, something they haven't really done very well this year? So I think your overall point, like Steph, again, comes out backs up Draymond Green's bravado with a, a great performance, and that's kind of been the deal, and I guess they kind of get it, but in the big picture, Steve, as we're kind of nearing the end of the path here for Golden State, at least as we know it, he's the first one to go when they start to break this thing up, and I think he kind of realizes that too, but like, yeah. you don't know what Draymond is post-Golden State, and that's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, we had C.J. Watson on who played for the Warriors, you know, back in the day, right mm-hmm. when Steph was, I was listening. starting out, and uh, C.J. came right out with that, a former NBA player. He's like, he's going to be the first guy to go if they get bumped from the playoffs because of this. All right, of course, because you were talking, like, if you, I could paint all the numbers for you, right? Like, in the regular season, when he was on the floor, they had a defensive rating of 120.1. They got it scored by six points per 100 possessions. Uh, going into game three, they had a defensive rating of 129 when he wasn't on the floor against Sacramento in the first two games. But he's important for what they do defensively. But at the same time, in today's NBA, where there's a litany of six, seven guys who can play like him and maybe not pass like him, but still defend at a pretty high level, he's the expendable one. Steph Curry's not going anywhere. Klay Thompson still has his value as a shooter, even though he's not the same defender. Like, he is the piece that, especially when you're talking about here, I mean, we all forget because it's been so long ago. It's the antics that might cost you a series. Many people would argue his antics cost them a championship literally against Cleveland all those years ago. Punching Jordan Poole, we kind of forget because that was such a long time ago, but at some point when you're talking about all of this adding up, and if it costs them this series because they they dug themselves too deep of a hole to get out, I think you're really looking at everything and going, all right, man, like I think we can kind of get away with moving on from this. Tomorrow's a big day for the uh, Vegas Golden Knights, uh, back on the ice in the peg, and uh, Ryan the Hockey Guy will be at the Nighttime Bar, which is at the M Resort. It's brought to you by Finley VW Henderson. He'll be there for pre, post, and intermission as he does uh, – around every Vegas Golden Knights game. It's a uh, very cool bar, just opened uh, late last year, the nighttime hockey bar right there by the Sportsbook. You can score a free pitcher, uh, get details down at the bar on uh, eight different Canadian beers, Molson, uh, Labatt Blue, got some ciders as well, Moosehead Lager. There's also a half-off pitcher special you can take advantage of. Real strong uh, Asian flair at the uh, nighttime bar, you can get some uh, ahi tuna salad, chicken teriyaki bowls, some pork spring rolls. Great menu, really good menu, and a really cool place. It's all about hockey. He's got hockey memorabilia and gear all over the walls at the nighttime bars. Tomorrow, Ryan the Hockey Guy with pre, post, and intermission. The puck drop is 1 o'clock as the Knights take on Winnipeg. 
Come hang with Cofield and Company at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside TI. Free parking, great food and drink specials, and giveaways. Every Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside TI. This is a fun time of year. There's so much going on. NBA playoffs. I know you were fixated on those last night. We'll get to the uh, the Suns, the Clippers, the Sixers, and the uh, uh, my poor Nets, right? Uh, we'll get to them in a little bit. Future's bright. Locally, we're going heavy and hard on VGK. That was a massive game last night, especially after the feeling that came out of game one against Winnipeg. That was crap. It just wasn't a great effort. I think the players knew it. The coach, Cassidy, knew it. Uh, they, you know, What they projected was a calm demeanor, but I'm sure day off – before the game, they're like, okay, it's go time. We got to come out, and we got to be on fire. And I thought they played like that from the get-go. Uh, Brassois had some pretty good moments because, you know, there's some pressure on him too. What if he goes out and he has a crap game? All of a sudden, now the guy you dubbed is your guy in the series, and it might be time for a change, right? Mm-hmm. So he played well. I thought the energy throughout the game was awesome. Uh, late in the game, the fact that, and middle of the game too, the fact that, you know, Eichel and... And Stone got some finishes. Eichel got a little bit earlier. But the play was in the game was, like I said, spirited. Um, here's – and there's another guy. Chandler Stevenson played a great game, as they call him Stevie. Um, here he is with goal number three as you had a 2-2 game and they get a chance here. And they deliver to go up 3-2. Stone gets the puck after the drop. Petrangelo shoots. Save. And a rebound. Score. Chandler Stevenson finds the puck in the slot, pots the rebound, and the Knights are back in the lead, 3-2, 14-23 to go in regulation. Yep. So third period there, that was the second time that the Knights were able to take advantage of a friggin' bomb ripped in there by Petrangelo because Eichel redirected one to score his first goal ever in the playoffs. That was Stevenson on the rebound. That shot was so freaking hard, Hellebuck couldn't control it. And then you saw Stone rise to the occasion, and he was fired up. And I'm sure he was, you know, not, not embarrassed, but angry about his his first game. He's coming back out after a, a long layoff. So here's Stone with his first goal in the series. Vegas with the puck. Two on two through center. Across the line on the right wing. Now to the left. Stevenson for Stone. He scores! Out it to Stevenson. To Stone. A vigorous celebration, wildly shaking his head, smacking his stick, all the way to his bench, pounding mitts with everybody. Four and two nights. Now, when I watch these games, I'm on social media a lot, Mm. and we were tweeting out the vast uh, social media crew was doing a good job up on ESPN Las Vegas. I was tweeting some stuff as well, and I always look for what people are saying, and I, I found some, you know, rando in Florida who was like, you know, Stone is celebrating like, you know, like a clown. Like, he, you know, he just won the Stanley Cup. Like, he's into it. He hasn't freaking played. It's been really frustrating for the better part now of a year plus going back to last season. Yeah, he's freaking jacked up. And then his emotions on the ice, I just, I think, I think everyone else latches onto it. Of course. You know, you, you see, and that's, he's a quiet guy with the media, but, He's a respected leader of the team, and when you see him get off to Schneid and he's going crazy, 
that's only going to get everyone else fired up. Well, I thought like when you go back to game one and you only get 17 shots off and you get thoroughly dominated the way that you do, I mean, that's like one thing where this Vegas Golden Knights team, if you've looked at them in the past, and one of the, you know, me, I like the analytics and numbers, the thing that's painted is it's been a team that's dominated shot share and they like had low energy, they weren't getting shots off in that first game, and then you come back in game two, even strength, shot share, everything like that, they were dominant. In so, terms of those regards. Massive insurance goal because, you know, 3-2, it's still nerve-wracking going down the last eight minutes or so. And then here's Stone with a second goal, and he got really, really fired up. Everybody else changing for the Knights with 2.35 to go. Carlson for Stone in front. He scores! 5-2 Knights. Mark Stone, two goals, one assist, three points. Oh, they're going nuts! <laughs> There he is, Dan Duva, best play-by-play guy in the city. Nothing against anyone else, but he's freaking awesome. He always does good calls on the other side, too, describing the action. Yeah, Stone basically skated up to the glass and then freaking slapped himself up on the glass, which was funny. Uh, by the way, I, at one point I turned to the SO, the significant others, who were watching the game, and I'm like, when I get fired from radio, I want to be the horn guy at the games. That's my thing. Never let up. That's my thing in a car. <laughs> the longhorn, yeah. which she hates, but... And just over and over again. Stone deserves it. He deserves an extra Longhorn. I say, is this tactic long or is it like rapid? Because I think that would be a lot more fun too. <laughs> I know in hockey it's long, but I think I'd go rapid fire. Miss any of the show? We've got you covered. Head to lvsportsnetwork.com and go to podcasts to listen to all of your favorite LV Sports Network shows anytime from any place. Former UNLV quarterback and current voice of the Rebels on radio, Caleb Herring is live right now on Cofield and Company. All right, let's bring in our guy, Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback, football insider, one of the uh, voices on the Barry Odom Coaches Show. Caleb, how you doing, buddy? I am doing fantastic today. I, this, is, this is an exciting time for me. My God. This, this point in the year, it's great. I love it. Why? Sports is like at a, at an all time high right now, like playoffs in two different major sports. Yep. Uh, in our city, obviously with the Knights, um, the Lakers are in the playoffs. Although they disappointed me in their last outing, but the NBA playoffs are always fun and exciting. And talking sports, controversy, and all that is just what I live for. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, the weather is is behaving itself. Yeah. As of late, um, without, <laughs> despite the allergies in the air, but yeah, yeah it's like it's like normalcy. You know, it's, it it feels good. It's a great time right now. So we'll get to the Lakers here in just a couple minutes. Uh, before we do that, though, let's talk about the week of news around UNLV. Uh, several players went into the portal. We'll hit that in a second. But uh, one of those guys was Harrison Bailey, uh, one of the four quarterbacks in the mix. I think we all knew that one of the quarterbacks behind Doug Brumfield wouldn't stay did you expect it to be Bailey and why do you think he decided to walk um, I did I, I had my my inklings that it would be Bailey and part of the reason was because he'd done it before and I you know I don't know the data but I know sometimes um, and I think we talked about this before that uh, when you've done something before it's it's more likely that you'll do it again and that's for uh, a lot of different things in life but I would think it would apply to the transfer portal like he knows what it feels like it's not like a mystery what it's like to transfer and leave so it makes the decision to do it easier um so that was part of why then secondly um i think he has the better resume to be able to transfer i I mean like if he was going to enter the portal um the next stop would he would look more enticing right with his background even though he didn't really live up 
to the resume at UNLV when he was here, a former Tennessee guy, a, a major high school standout um, out of Georgia. Like he has some things that were impressive about him before his stint at UNLV that I think would have boosted his resume for his next landing spot. So it made sense for me that it was Harrison. Um, it leaves the room with some question marks. Obviously, the gap between one and two now for UNLV is going to be a lot uh, bigger when you're talking about from Brumfield to whoever the next guy will be, whether it's Friel or or it's going to be Mayava. Um, so that's something that UNLV will have to sort out. Um, but for Harrison, I think it did make sense for him to get out. The, 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 it was, I think, clear throughout spring ball that Doug was the number one. So if he wants to start and play, he's going to have to do it elsewhere, at least for this next season. So I think it's really funny, Caleb. You get these like perceptions of players, right? So coming in, everybody was like, "Ah, oh, of course, Bailey transferred SEC, got to be the starter." Not really the case. Everybody's disappointed and confused as to why. And now he transfers, and you hear like he couldn't win a job at UNLV. Where in the world is she supposed to go? So what do you make of this narrative now that like you can win a job on a bad team? You're not going to have any suitors. Yeah, I think that's 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 a very unfair and and quick-to-judge type of mentality. Um, I, I don't think every situation is just about a person's raw talent and who they are and what they can do as a football player. Uh, we're talking about football specifically in Transfer Portal. Um, there's situations that make players look better or worse, and it goes both ways. And that's why you kind of just have to let things happen and watch and evaluate for yourself, especially when you talk about a talented guy or a guy that has talent or not. Um, and I, most of the time when people make those kind of bold claims – uh, or suggestions, I should say, is it comes from a place that's not necessarily through pure analysis of the player. It's just, you know, speculation based on the context that they have, right? Like he didn't, yeah, through that context, you know, he's not a good school as far as winning and success and tradition. So you say, if you can't make it here, you can't, where else are you going to make it? That seems like a very broad statement to make, but there's context to every situation. I mean, I personally lived through that context where I wasn't making any headway on the roster. I was relegated to the bench um, at UNLV. And then, you know, I'd stayed and ended up leading the team to a bowl game. So my talent necessarily wasn't the problem for me. Um, and had I transferred, I'm sure there have been people that would have said the same thing. Like he couldn't make it here. What makes him think he's going to make it somewhere else? Um, but the situation changed. The context around me changed and allowed for my personal ability to shine in a new system and a new situation. Um, and that happens from time to time in college football and, and in sports in general. There's a, a very small window of opportunity for somebody not only to be great or good at something, but also to have the stars align, so to speak, and the system, the coaches, the players around them also be good so that in a team sport, their talent can manifest on the field. So I think for people to say things like, if he transfers, it's because he couldn't make it here, wh where do you think he's gonna go? I just don't think that gives fair credit. Now there are people and I'll say this, there are people that transfer and young people that transfer where it's a case of they could make it and they didn't want to work to compete for a job and they thought things would be handed to them. That's, that will work itself out in that person's life, whether it's here, whether it's at some other school, wherever it happens, whether it's after their playing career where that personal flaw about them gets revealed to them. It's not for me to judge that. I, I would never come down on a kid for, for his own personal stuff. Like that's, that's something he's going to have to figure out. If he's not good enough, he's not good enough. It's a reality that everybody's going to have to face one day. Um, so th through that lens, I would never even tamper with that. If you decide to transfer, it's a personal decision. I stand firmly on the belief that if you transfer, if you opt out, the consequences now are completely up to you. Like if you don't go somewhere and play, it's your fault now. Like you, you could have stayed here and not played or, you know, whatever the case may be. 
But um, I, just, I just am not of the camp to condemn people for their decisions or even talk bad about people after they leave. It's not um, for, it's not my place to to put that kind of, uh, I guess, bad juju out there on somebody, especially when it comes to a sporting career. Well, it also does a disservice to Doug Brumfield, who won the job and actually had kind of a career year, right? I mean, there's a reason why he couldn't win the job. It's not because Bailey stunk. It's because Brumfield had a really good camp and had a really good season when he was available and healthy. Yeah, and it's like, can you blame anybody for not – picking Doug, right? Like, I mean, there was, even in the context of last season, there was a, you know, Harrison got his shot last year, right? It's not like he he was, you know, completely, uh, there was an open quarterback competition. Doug was in the portal last spring. Um, so if anything, it would have been kind of leading to Harrison's favor to get more time or to be the starter come fall. Um, and then when Doug went out, like you said, he got a chance. He, he got a chance to come out and play, albeit against Notre Dame, right? Um, but he got a chance to come out and show what he could do. Um, and everybody saw what Doug did. And there was very early in the season. It was, like, I, there he is. I, there I he is. Of, yeah. Damn, okay. <laughs> okay. We didn't know if we were gone or you were gone. So, um, <laughs> well, let's uh, let, let's pivot to the NBA. So, what did you see in your Lakers the other night? I was disappointed, especially with the, the play down the stretch, a chance to kind of step on the necks of the Grizz. So, what's the hope the rest of the way? Yeah, I was disappointed as well. Right? It was a it was a game from the tip that the Lakers just showed up and thought that the Grizz, with everything that happened, um, with the injuries that they have already with Stephen Adams and, and uh, you know coming into the the series, and then the news that Ja wasn't going to play, I think the Lakers fully anticipated that they would just roll over and it would just be kind of a cakewalk. Um, but you know the proof was in the pudding with the Grizzlies. They they actually are a more efficient team. I won't go as far as say a better team. But they're a more efficient team without John Morant. And I, I love uh, Tyus Jones at point guard. Like, he's a starting point guard on any other team that doesn't have a superstar like John Morant who sells tickets and all that stuff and is a highlight reel. But the Memphis Grizzlies are a dangerous team without John Morant. And that's been proven when, his, when he's been absent this year and last year. Um, but the Lakers obviously didn't have that information. <laughs> so they came out and kind of tried to sleepwalk through it. And they expected their greatness and their talent to carry the day. Um, and they didn't play with nearly the energy that you should when you have an opportunity to step on a team's throw like that. Um, and then even in the third quarter when they made a push, um, you know, I, 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 I love LeBron James as a player. I respect what he does. He's one of the greatest players to ever dribble basketball. Um, but there's something about me as a competitor that I can't stand about LeBron James. Um, and the moments like when Dylan Brooks claps in your face and stares you down in a game where he has you on the ropes, I expect an immediate dominant response. And I understand LeBron's not in that place in his career anymore. What I expected was the 25 points in a row against Boston LeBron to <laughs> all of a sudden manifest, right? I, I wanted the Mamba mentality to, to stare right back at Dylan and, and put him in his place, so to speak. Um, so I, th that, that irked me a little bit as well. And then Anthony Davis, 13 points, was just, I don't, I don't see how you let uh, Xavier Tillman absolutely dominate you for four quarters of a basketball game if you're supposed to be one of the top 10 players in the NBA. But disappointing outing. There's still a lot of basketball left to be played in that series. The longer the series goes, unfortunately, the worse it gets for the Lakers um, because the back-to-backs on the road in Memphis are, are going to be tough. Like travel, you know, Memphis is, somebody said it, Memphis is a West Coast team in, in name only. That's a, that's a long flight to go back and forth um, and play, you know, every other night if you're an older team like the Lakers are. So We'll see how the series goes, but I was definitely disappointed in that in that game. So I don't know if you saw earlier today during availability, LeBron actually stopped the press conference early. 
because they kept asking him about Dylan Brooks, and he said, I don't want to talk about this BS anymore. It's going to be a fun game, and then walked off. So maybe you'll get vintage LeBron coming up in game three. Who knows? Maybe he'll actually wake up. Let me ask you, you mentioned Xavier Tillman. What have you made of Jaron Jackson Jr.? Because when I, when I was looking at the series, uh, I figured that the hopes actually, kind of your point, Caleb, rested on the shoulders of Jackson, not John Morant. He can be awesome defensively. He's going to be available. He had 40 minutes the other day. He's been staying out of foul trouble. He's been a big reason why, that, especially in that second game, that they've been awesome on defense. Yeah, he's been he's been staying out of foul trouble because he, Anthony Davis hasn't been aggressive on him. Yeah. And I think that they, they've been doing a good job of keeping him off him. Jared Jackson has had a favorable matchup in every game. He's been like going up against Hachimura and, uh, I guess, Vanderbilt, I guess, on the other end. So he hasn't been forced into any action by the Lakers. And I think it's just a poor game plan. Number one, Anthony Davis is in pick and roll or pick and pop way too often. I think whether or not he wants to do it, it's the game plan and it's the advantage for him to post up and to dominate his matchup. Um, so I, I think that that is the offense that they should be going through. And that's how they got the championship, uh, even though it was in the bubble. They went through Anthony Davis. Um, so I think they've been trying to get D'Angelo Russell involved and using him in the high pick and roll with Anthony Davis and with Austin Reeves. Uh, but I think Anthony Davis hasn't been forceful enough in getting the ball and demanding the ball in the post, which is where Jerry Jackson, where, where he would pick up his fouls. Um, and I think he's been known to be in foul trouble all season long against the Lakers who lead the league in free throw attempts. Why isn't he in foul trouble? And that's simply because the game plan hasn't been to attack that. And I, I think that's a, that's a mistake and that's coaching has to get involved with that. But I think the players on the court also have to make the adjustments and say, Hey, look, they've got one real big it's Jackson. Let's go at him. Let's use our big to, to get him in foul trouble. If nothing else, can we do that at least, or at least attack him more on our dribble penetration? I think, you know, D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves don't really look to be finishers at the rim as their first instinct. Um, so they should. They should attack him and make him work more on defense. He's defensive player of the year, but if he's in foul trouble, he's pretty useless to anybody. So that's a good point. I think he's been on the court for far too long if you're talking about keeping their, their options limited and taking advantage of matchups. John Von Tobel, Cofield, hanging out at TI, Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar, TSPN Las Vegas on a Friday. Caleb Herring is with us pivoting to the draft. Do you believe C.J. Stroud really could slip a big way uh, in this draft next Thursday? And is the reason this S2 that we haven't really heard a whole lot about, but it seems like it's replacing the Wonderlick, and a lot of it's about uh, cognitive abilities and the ability to make quick decisions and process. We uh, saw some leaked numbers that uh, Bryce Young hit like a 98%. You know, process is really quick. Stroud maybe didn't do that well and hit like 18%. So what do you make of this? And does this kind of irk you on player evaluation that we're, you know, we're doing these tests and that could be the, uh, you know, the final decision maker with a guy like Stroud who may be slipping? Yeah, I, I believe he could slip because I've seen it happen before. I think with these kind of pre-draft narratives being drummed up, um, it's happened. And it happened recently as Justin Fields, who I thought was the second best quarterback in his class. And I think Zach Wilson and somebody else ended up going before him. Um, in his class and it was like huh I wonder why and it's you know these narratives that come up he's not very smart he's not this he did he did bad on this test yes to the wonder look whatever it is um, and I just like always like wonder like I've taken these tests I've taken the wonder look and I I don't remember being on a football field playing football when I was taking this evaluation and uh, to me I, I, I miss the part where the evaluation on what I think my franchise quarterback should be or my best football player should be was about Wonderlick and S2. 
and you know his cognitive processes or, or even just his test taking ability because these things are are not the most accurate measure and we know that um you know based on who researched and they're not always accurate for what you're testing for like i'm not testing him to be a neuroscientist or to be a teacher or to be um to perform whatever cognitive based test you want to perform i'm i'm i want him to be the best football player he can be and be a high character person and there's no way i can assess that unless i'm assessing his football the test has been his career to this point he's played football at ohio state he's played football at alabama he's played he's put the film on that is what i'm assessing right and i i, I think we're we're trying to outsmart ourselves as football analysts in some in some situations um and we're trying to uncover every stone when it can be very simple is this person a good person and is he good at football and i think cj style kind of checks both of those boxes i don't know him personally um but i i've heard nothing but good things about his character um i see and i watch and i don't see really you know there's no track record of anything flawed in his personality uh, ohio state is a, a very prestigious university i don't know that he did all of his homework i don't know if anybody helped him but i'm saying the, I think these kind of narratives that get drummed up right around the draft do have the potential to affect somebody's landing spot in the draft. And like I said, Justin Fields is the most recent example. Um, but CJ Stroud has been 1-2 for me, 1A, 1B, 2 Bryce Young. And that's based on football. Um, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on these Wonderlick and S2 tests, but I think that these get far too much weight right around the last minute of draft. Like it's, yeah. it's almost like it's intentional to kind of cast seeds of doubt on a guy. To, yeah. to, to bring his stock down for whatever the reason may be. I'm not going to sit here and say I know the reason. There's people that will go say it's, it's racism, it's whatever. It's I know the guy's agent. I'm trying to blackball him so my guy gets, gets higher, the higher pick. Whatever the case may be, it's unnecessary and it's silly. I right. think we, the, at this point, the assessment of the person should be kind of finalized. Are they good or not? Let's go ahead and make the pick based on that. Caleb, we're up against it, buddy. We'll see you. Thank you so much. All right, yeah. guys. Appreciate it. Have a good one. I hate the leaking of the Wonderlick, the S2 stuff. I hate that as well. Listen, Phil Sims by the Wonderlick was a complete moron, scored horribly, but turned out to be a pretty good NFL quarterback, and he is one of the smartest analysts that we see on TV covering the NFL.